This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik, a progress company. Hello, and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Burke Holland. Hola. And today we're going to do a review of what happened in 2015 and look at the future of what's going to happen in 2016. Awesome. We're going to make all the predictions. <laughs> now, Burke, why don't, why don't you kick us off with a little introduction of who you are and what, what you do? Sure. My name is Burke Holland, and I work on the developer relations team with yourself and several other fine individuals at Telerik, where we make the best developer tools in the world, and uh, we put those developer tools to the test and make sure that uh, the developers that are using them are successful. Because if they're not awesome, Ed, we're not awesome, and that's what it's all about. <laughs> So this year was a pretty crazy year with software development. There were tons of uh, you know new tools coming out, new frameworks coming out, uh, all sorts of new things like operating systems even uh, coming out this year and being updated in major ways. So Burke, let's review some of these things and, and talk about what happened over the year, and we can kind of use that as a gauge to you know, predict what's going to be hot next year in 2016. Uh, what are the new frameworks coming up that everybody's going to need to know? Um, and what, you know, what in the operating system field are we going to need to look out for? What big updates are coming to those? Sound good? Yeah. Oh, it sounds great, man. 2015 was an insane year in terms of everything that happened. I mean, it was, it was nuts. When we were looking back at the list that we just made about stuff we were going to go over, I'm like, man, did all that happen in 2015? Wow. I mean, technology moves fast, but 2015 was like, ah, I don't know if I can if I can be in this career field much longer, man. I'm getting smoked. <laughs> well, you know, we've got lots of big players now, you know, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, uh, GitHub. Everybody's throwing their hat in the ring on all kinds of frameworks and all kinds of uh, tooling. And it's all taking off under different types of avenues of, of getting into the market. Um, one of those things was code editors. Uh, it seems like every entity out there has to throw a code editor out into the arena this year. Uh, we've got things like Visual Studio Code from Microsoft, a free code editor that's a vast departure from their, their massive Visual Studio offering that's been you know, hundreds if not thousands of dollars for people to get before. Uh, and now they've got this free code editor that's a you know, lightweight text editor style of a code editor that competes with things like Atom and uh, Adobe's Brackets, which we'll, we'll get into a little more details on in a minute. Yeah, it's. I think the, the code editor thing is super interesting because for developers, you know, code editors, it's like your, it's like your best friend, you know, it's like your dog. You're not going to give up your dog for another dog, right? That's your dog. <laughs> and so to say, hey, you know, we've got a new IDE or a new code editor and we think you should use it. I mean, that's a you really can't ask developers to do anything more drastic. And so it, it, it was pretty nuts in 2015 to see all of these different code editors like Visual Studio Code, um, Atom, uh, become super popular with developers. And even more interesting is the fact that both of those editors are actually just websites. 
wrapped in uh, wrapped in a desktop shell. So we're now building applications in an IDE that's really just built on web technologies. Kind of insane, man. It's like a chicken and the egg scenario there. The web-based editor that's used to build web applications. Now let's let's talk about Visual Studio Code for a second because. You know, we talk about code editors, and then there's IDEs, which are two very different things, in my opinion. So you've got Visual Studio, which is like the, you know, dad's big Buick that has the heated leather seats, <laughs> the power, you know, the power mirrors. Every little thing is just catering to the person that's using it. Uh, everything's automated. Um, you know, it's just this ultimate machine that you know caters to your every need and then there's the code editor that's like here's the bare chassis and a seat <laughs> it's fast right it doesn't have a lot of features but it still gets you from a to b right i guess that does that make eclipse like a geometro um little little java joke for my java people out there <laughs> i'd say it makes eclipse more like a volvo Volvo? The Volvo. All the Volvo people just got offended. They're like, hey, man, compare my car to Eclipse. That's not cool. Volvos are awesome. Come on. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it has no no style. At least a Buick has style. That's true. You know, if we start with Visual Studio Code, I think that that's one of the most interesting ones, specifically because people really seem to love it. Um, And I've been using it lately as I've been doing native script development, specifically because it has really good support for TypeScript which um, we've seen also gain a lot of traction with developers. Uh, And so that one, I think Visual Studio Code has been the most interesting one to me. Although when I first started using it, I didn't like it because it wasn't extensible and it wasn't open source. But actually both of those things are now not true anymore. It is open source and it is extensible. Uh, And so I, I see Visual Studio Code as possibly superseding, this is my prediction, Visual Studio Code will supersede Atom and Sublime Text 3 as the code editor of choice uh, for both Windows and Mac users in 2016. It'd be really interesting to see that if it does do that because Visual Studio Code is actually based on Atom. It is, and both Atom and Visual Studio Code are built on Electron, which is this um, wrapper that uh, I believe was initially started at GitHub. And it was the Atom shell, and it became Electron. Uh, and both of those, as code editors and as user interfaces, are just ridiculously fast. Uh, you know, we sort of had this, especially on mobile, this idea that if you build, if you try to build a desktop application or a mobile application with web technologies, it'll kind of work, but it won't be that fast, and people won't like it. And yet, now we're, our code editors are, are built on those technologies, which is arguably the hardest kind of application to build and still be performant. There's just so much going on. Um, and so just super fascinating. And it also makes me wonder, you know, how much more we're going to see of Electron in 2016. Um, I believe Slack runs on Electron. I know the Visual Studio Code team has been working with the Electron team. We, Ed, I don't know if you know this, but we just shipped a code editor for the Teller platform called Proton. Proton yes, is did. built on Electron, yeah. Actually, that's in beta. Uh, I don't even know. How do, we, how do people sign up for the Proton beta? Um... You caught that. me off guard on that one. I don't know. Find an answer. I, I don't know I either. I shouldn't have tried it, but I, I, <laughs> I was given it through internal channels. So so what, one last word on, on code editors, and we'll move on to 
some other things. Uh, and we're still talking about 2015 here. Don't don't mistake me for talking about 1999. Okay, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say Dreamweaver. Okay. Ooh. So tables. Uh, All I heard you say just, just now was tables. Like yesterday. <laughs> just yesterday, Adobe says uh, they're gonna roll Dreamweaver Dreamweaver into brackets. So it'll be interesting. Other way, to see other way around. Takes form. Oh, sorry, right? sorry. Uh, bracket, bra- bleh. brackets is going to be rolled into Dreamweaver then, right? I believe that is the case. Yeah. So that'll be interesting to see, and I probably just angered a lot of people out there that use Dreamweaver and love it. So. I love it. Well, I you know I think that it's I think I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I feel like Adobe sort of gratuitously murdered Macromedia and all the great products that they made there with uh, Flash and, and Cold Fusion and Dreamweaver. They were all great. And then Adobe sort of came along and bought them and, and killed them all. And listen, I can say that because I was a Flex developer and I still have some residual bitterness. Uh, but yeah, very interesting that they would take an HTML5 editor brackets, just like essentially just like um, uh, Atom and, and Visual Studio Code, uh, not built on Electron, but using the Chrome embedded framework i believe or the chrome shell and i'm just talking i don't even know what i'm talking about but rolling that into dreamweaver as i guess now the code editor for dreamweaver i would assume that's how those two things will line up but i don't know i will go out on a limb though and say that 2016 may be the return of flash Um, and i say that in i can't use the word flash anymore because they they changed the name of it uh, recently, and this is like day old news. So, like literally, this stuff happened. I think yesterday, um, which would be December first. Um, they said that they're they've got a new Flash type of tool that's out, and this tool exports to SVG. So imagine keyframe animations, all that good stuff that you used to love about Flash, but now we got SVG, which is web, you know, HTML five friendly. That's very very interesting. I think you're talking about animate, right? Is it called Edge Animate? Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what they called it, Animate. Yeah, I believe that's it. Yeah, so we may see the return of at least good, solid web animation, for lack of a better term, Flash, in 2016. As just sites that are just SVG and nothing but SVG. Or at least a good portion 100% of, SVG. you know, what, what you're looking at. Uh, you know, the part of the site that's attracting you uh, to that site or, you know, especially marketing sites, heavy marketing sites, you know, that's application developers, maybe not so much. Uh, we'll see this stuff, but, uh, you know, product marketing sites, definitely, uh, I think big SVG, uh, animations may be coming down the pipe next year. You know, what other else was big for flash was, well, not just games. And actually my kids still play a ton of flash games. I mean, a ton, uh, they get on the computers and they play these flash games that are, just insane. So I don't think we really have anything yet to usurp that. But um, the other place that we saw Flash a lot was like band websites. I don't know if you remember, but like every band yeah. had this like crazy Flash website that didn't look anything like a website and usually would play audio, like uninvited audio when you went there, and especially heavy metal bands. But uh, yeah, so I'm Un- looking forward to yeah more of that. Oh. Uninvited audio. I like that term. That's uh, that's another thing that we saw a little bit. Uh, being under attack in 2015 with brow- uh, browser support. So uh, one of the greatest things ever is um, when they added Chrome's uh, you know, speaker icon at the top of the browser when you've got that quote-unquote uninvited audio 
playing in the background, you can actually tell where it's coming from. Yeah, that was really nice. And actually, I think one of the browsers will actually silence the audio if it begins to play on a tab that's not active. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but you'll load a page and then you'll go to a different tab and the audio will play because it's like delayed because it's in a, it's in a, a like a, a carousel, like an ad carousel. Do you ever have this happen? Where yeah, audio just starts playing. You're like, what is that? Play in sidebars of, you know, news websites and stuff. It's, it's pretty obnoxious stuff. I can't remember. Maybe it was edge. I can't remember, but one of them, it'll show the speaker, but it, it but it like, it blinks. It doesn't actually play until you activate the tab. They're really neat stuff. So another another big uh, release this year was uh, our own native script. So native yeah, script got a very fast moving uh, product of ours. So we we're rolling revs on this thing really quick. What is native script, Ed? What's your native what's script. your uh, what's your quick pitch? <laughs> so this is our very own. When I say our, I mean Telerix. Uh, platform for our framework for building javascript based um, native web app or sorry native mobile applications that compile down to native ios and native android uh, from javascript css and xml yeah that's correct very good i like it um yeah really interesting project and actually was started like three years ago we used to call it uh, the X compile project. I had this idea where, um, what, cause what we saw was that people would build hybrid apps uh, or phone gap apps, and then they would start adding all these plugins into their app. And so, you know, they wanted a native action sheet and they wanted native buttons and then they wanted, you know, a native nav bar. And then at some point they were like, what if we just replace all of the hybrid components with phone gap plugins? And then we thought, well, what if we just transpile all the HTML and JavaScript into actual native code. Um, and so we began, we went about seeing what that looked like and um, that's how we ended up with the native script project, which doesn't really work like that. Um, but yeah, you're right. One of the most exciting things that we've released, I think at Telerik recently and an open source project, which was really cool to be able to do that. And I'll say as a primarily a web developer, my favorite thing about native script is the live, re, uh, live reload or live sync where you can make an edit on the application's code and just like instantly you've get, you know, the brand new version loads in your, up on your phone so you can see the changes immediately. So it's, yeah, it's like, I, you know, that same type of web workflow, but native I application. Think, I think web developers have a, sort of a raised bar in terms of what we expect, right? Because the build cycle for a web app is refresh. That's the build button. And so if we're building a JavaScript and, and markup uh, XML in native scripts case, we expect that to sort of happen there too. Only it's a little bit more complicated with native apps because native apps actually have to be compiled into, uh, into bytecode and they have to be packaged and they have to be installed onto the device. Uh, but the native script team has done a great job with that, with the live sync stuff. So you can, save your changes and, and view them with a one to two second delay on your device. But I think you're right, taking out that step of having to, you know, recompile a native project. And I think back to the WinForms days where you'd like be running a Visual Studio and you hit the stop button, then you hit the play button, and you wait for the whole thing to fire back up again, and you navigate back to the screen in your application where you were making changes. And that whole loop was really 
kind of gross and not fun. Um, and so using something, a dynamic language like JavaScript allows uh, platforms like NativeScript to offer that sort of live reload, hot reload flexibility. Really cool stuff. So, so these things kind of go hand in hand. So let's move on to, to JavaScript and talk about Angular 2.0 because Angular 2.0 is going to be one of those things that's for the web, but also you can use it to build uh, you know, other types of applications that don't have a web browser attached. So it's something that we could potentially use with native script. And then, of course, you can use it with the web as well. Yeah, it's, um, I, I think it, especially with Angular 2, uh, that's the big interesting one right now for everybody is uh, sort of how is that going to play out? Angular 2 is a little bit interesting, and so is React uh, specifically because there's this idea that you should be able to build JavaScript applications on the web um, and also that they can be used to create uh, native mobile applications with like native script or React Native, but also that eventually you should be able to create desktop applications with JavaScript as well. And so this, so this idea that you should be able to have an Angular application, you should be able to say, I'm going to take this code and I'm going to go to the web with this code, or I'm going to take this code and I'm going to go to a mobile device with this code. And, and now to be fair, I'm not saying that you would have one UI that works everywhere. That's, that's sort of a pipe dream and a lie. If you're gonna build a website, build a <laughs> website. If you're gonna build a mobile app, build a mobile app. But your business logic, right, contained in your, uh, in your Angular uh, services or factories, if you will, should be able to be reused across both of those uh, platforms. And so the NativeScript team's been working with the Angular team to provide that Angular 2 uh, integration inside of NativeScript so that your Angular 2 code that you use to build your website, you can turn right around and use most of that in your mobile application as well. And that's that's coming in 2016. That's not a prediction, that's a fact. Yeah, big year for JavaScript in general, I think. I mean, you've got, from one, ECMAScript 6 standards coming through in the browsers. Um, you're seeing new features being added to JavaScript there. Uh, we've got major frameworks like React, major frameworks like uh, Angular 2.0. Uh, and then, like you said, these are things that we're going to be able to build desktop applications with, mobile native applications with, uh, web applications with. So we're seeing JavaScript just proliferate into every part of our developer lives. How do you think people feel about that? Like, what about our Java and C-sharp developers? How do you think they feel about this idea of... JavaScript on the mobile device and JavaScript on the desktop. I mean, is that even a good idea? Isn't that why we have Java and Objective-C and C-sharp? I would have to say there's going to be people on both sides of the fence, and then there's going to be people that lie somewhere in the middle. Um, there's very different use cases for things like C-sharp and uh, JavaScript. Uh, depending on what type of application you're going to build. And I think one of the most um, stereotypical uh, type of comparisons that I've heard is uh, the F-sharp community. You know, they have this um, this analogy or, or, I guess, case that they use uh, to, to prove why F-sharp is great. And it's, it has to do with um, sending... Uh, an orbiter or satellite, I can't remember the exact story, um, to, uh, I think it's Mars. Somebody will correct me, I'm sure, if I'm wrong. 
And the team that, that worked on this application, they actually did it in two parts. One team used the metric system. One team used the, uh, you know, English system. And when this, this lander was about to get to the surface, it was calculating the uh, feet off of the surface incorrectly and crashed because of this disparity in units. So the people that use F-sharp say, well, if they would have used F-sharp, then this never would have happened because the compiler would have caught it. So with that said, you know, there's different tools for different jobs. So is JavaScript great for everything out there? Maybe not. Um, can it do good, you know, line of business applications? Probably so. Um, it, you know, right tool for the job. I'm sure there's use cases where all these different languages are great at their own specific things. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think this is why TypeScript has become so popular is because it does provide that, that uh, what we'll call the dumbest form of, of unit testing, which is compiler as a unit test, uh, which we tend to write off as being invalid, but it actually, it, that's, that is the simplest form of unit test. And if you're, if you don't have a compiler and you're not writing unit tests, then you have no test. Uh, and so I've been using TypeScript a lot lately, and not only do I appreciate the, the tooling that comes with that as far as JavaScript goes, but I also appreciate the um, design time error checking that it does for me, right? Like, hey, you're, you're trying to assign these two things together. That's not going to work. You're referencing a property here that does not exist. That's not going to work. Because when you talk about JavaScript in the browser, the browser is very forgiving, right? If your JavaScript fails, the web page doesn't go away. It's still there. But on a, on a mobile device, if you're building uh, like a native script app and your JavaScript breaks, right? You reference a property that doesn't exist, then the app crashes. And on mobile devices, app crashes are nasty. The app just goes away. It doesn't tell you anything. Right? Just, it just disappears. Just the worst user experience. <laughs> Terrible. That's a, that's a feature. That's a feature, my friend. Right. I've watched my wife do this, right? She'll like, she'll, she has an Android device and she'll be doing something. I've seen Chrome crash, crash on her a couple times and it just goes away. Right? She's like, what? where'd it go? I don't understand what just happened. I'm like, it, it crashed. Like, it died. You have to start all over again. So anyway, to, to tie that back, I said to say, I think that TypeScript really helps people that, like me, that came from, I came from a, an action script and, and, and then a C-sharp background to, to feel more confident about building larger scale applications with JavaScript. Another platform that uses... Um... A form of JavaScript is uh, Windows. Uh, the new Windows Universal applications have a JavaScript uh, language that you can use. Uh, Windows 10 was a big thing this year. Uh, all sorts of love and hate towards that operating system. Uh, we, then you had the the competing, you know, Max um, OS 10 El Capitan release that was this year as well. So those two things caused a lot of uh, drama. Yeah, how do you feel about Windows 10? Did you upgrade yet? I have not upgraded yet. So I've had people that have upgraded and lost different parts of their computer's ability. So I, you know, obviously do a podcast and record webinars for Telerik and write code and nameless other things that I you don't you don't want to run that risk. Have to have a microphone that works, and then I have friends that uh, I play games with and. Uh, you know, I log in and start playing a game with them and I'm, and I'm talking and I'm like, 
you know, they're typing back. I'm like, what's, what's the deal? Why are you typing? They're like, yeah, I upgraded to Windows 10 today. My microphone doesn't work anymore. I'm like, yeah, I've got a webinar that I have to record and it's due in three days. I can't really run the risk of upgrading to Windows 10 and not having my microphone and losing productivity on webinars and podcasts for, you know, some time until I get it back. So I've, I've put it off myself. Um, I have used, I've got uh, a PC in the house that has it, but it's, it's not something I touch a lot. Uh, and then there's Al Capitan, which I've heard a lot of nightmare stories about, you know, people upgrading to that and losing the ability to use Ruby and some other things. Yeah. I had that issue where, uh, Ruby was just, the install was hosed. Uh, I mean, really, if you, if you've ever been on a Mac and, and you're, or using Ruby in general, on a Mac and you get in this sort of like permissions hell where you can't install gems and you do install gems and some of them don't work and the errors are cryptic. And a lot of that's because somehow the El Capitan upgrade just hoses the Ruby installation uh, for Mac users. And you get to find out the hard way, which is by troll, you know, trolling stack overflow and <laughs> GitHub repos and opening issues that are really not actually issues, but just sort of a, configuration errors and stuff like that. So yeah, you're right. As far as Windows 10 goes, I upgraded my one PC to Windows 10. Uh, and for the most part, I, I've been happy. I think the interface is good, but it is quite a bit slower than uh, than 8.1 in my experience. I haven't used it on my production machine yet, so I've, I've yet to see if there's a performance issue for myself. Um, I will say though, you know, let's let's look in, into 2016 and beyond. Uh, between Windows 10 and the Mac operating system, uh, Windows seems like it has this more forward-thinking approach where we're going to have applications that you can write once and run for the most part anywhere. And you touched on this a little bit, like the one UI to rule them, rule them all is a little bit of a pipe dream, which they, they do have, you know, caveats for it where you can you know, switch out UIs for, say, a mobile, Windows mobile versus, you know, a tablet PC or just a desktop PC. Uh, but f they also do advocate that, you know, these this will be able to do all three. So what do you think of that versus Apple's kind of sitting back and, and not tackling this thing approach? Man, <clears throat> I, I think in theory it sounds great. In practice... I just don't <laughs> see how that actually works because I do think it's a lie to say to people, write one application and it will run everywhere. Now, there are parts of your application that you will be able to share, but even, even if you're just trying to write an iOS, uh, say you're just trying to write a mobile app and you want that app to run across iOS and Android, right? Let's take Windows Phone out of the mix for just a minute because it, its UI is way different. iOS and Android are very similar. It is a lie to tell people that you're going to be able to create one application that runs across both devices and the code base is going to be exactly the same, right? Same code on iOS, same code on Android. This is just not true. You will have to make concessions for both platforms. Um, and so what you need is a framework that will allow you to do that. Now, getting back to Windows 10, it, it seems like a, like a very appealing idea that I would be able to uh, create the same application that would run anywhere. But in actual practice, again, I just don't think that's going to work, man. I, I just don't think it's going to work. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see, though. Um, 
I'm not saying it will or won't work. I won't go out on a limb that far, I don't think. But I do at least admire the um, tenacity to, to, to tackle that <laughs> point of view and say um, it, it's kind of like the responsive web for uh, Windows. I mean, it's you've got an application that you write for Windows desktop and any Windows 10 OS it is supposed to be able to run on. That's a pretty ambitious uh, thing to bite off and, and try to make work. Yeah, I mean, I, and I guess if you think of building desktop applications like we build, we build responsive applications, because we do that on the web, right? We say, well, mm -hmm. they could be on the desktop or they could be on a mobile device, and we don't know. Um, and so we need to account for both. And I think that, yeah, Microsoft, is, Microsoft has always been very forward-thinking. Right? How much how much stuff has Microsoft invented and then later it's been credited to, to other companies that come out and do something you know very similar? It's a very forward-thinking organization. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Does that catch on, right? Let's build desktop apps the way that we build, or let's build native apps. I'm saying native, the way that we build web apps, right? It should look good on a desktop. It should look good on a mobile device, and it should run on both places. Speaking of responsive web, let's let's celebrate a birthday. So we did a we had a birthday this year. We did. Uh, Ken, yeah. Kendo UI turned four four years old. Is that right? Four. Yeah, four years old. It's crazy. It's like uh, they say, you know, if you have kids, everybody out there that has kids will will know what I mean by this. But um, one day you'll wake up and your child will be ten years old, and you'll look at him and go, "What happened? Right? You were you were six months old like yesterday." Uh, and the same is true for Kendo UI. Kendo UI turned four years old this year, uh, just right about now, and uh, it's just amazing that how 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 far it's come and how long it's been. Seems like just yesterday. Yeah, one of the big things that happened with Kendo UI this year is it's really fully matured into this responsive web toolkit that has you know grids and charts and all kinds of really cool stuff that works anywhere. Yeah, you know, four years is an eternity in software. And so when you have that much time to focus on a product, you're able to, you know, we recently shipped, as part of the fourth birthday for Kendo UI, we shipped a spreadsheet <laughs> widget, which is, is just insane when you think about shipping sort of an Excel, uh, fully functioning Excel interface to people that they can actually use themselves. Um, and, uh, and that's just... Just a long way from drop-down lists and autocompletes, you know. We're now at Gantt charts and spreadsheets and, and pivot grids. Um, really exciting to, to sort of see that come together. Yeah, we really have to give it up to our engineers for Kendo UI. I mean, they, they really put some blood, sweat, and tears into that product. They really did. Um, and so we should recognize folks like Korchev and, and Pecho. And, um, Absolutely. Uh, and Alex. Great. Yeah, they're awesome. So with every great end of your show, uh, you have to have your birthdays, but you also have to say goodbye to the ones that you've lost. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of declaring things dead in 2015. Uh, some of the more recent ones, like Bauer and Grunt. Is Bauer dead? Bauer's dead? Uh, apparently it's dead. Like Everybody's always got these... Um, uh, articles that they toss out. Uh, heck, we're even guilty sometimes. Um, you know, where we we've got to pick on something that's uh, something that's not either 
in our wheelhouse, we, we think it's, you know, there's a better replacement for it, or maybe it's, uh, it's GitHub uh, uh, contributor list is very short or shortening. Um, I, I guess that's what happened with uh, a Bauer is um, the contributors just kind of dwindled off. So uh, yeah. naturally, instead of saying, you know, this, this product is uh, going to remain at X.0 for some time until new contributors pick up. We immediately just get out the shovels and start burying the thing. <laughs> we do. We're very quick to eat. We're very quick to eat our, our wounded. But I would say that, you know, in, in, in the technology world, there's a lot of cannibalization and, and that's a good thing, right? Like we want to, we want to take these things that were good, but that we can do better or that we think in Bauer's case is redundant because it's already available via NPM. And let's not be afraid to to kill those things off and move forward. I think I actually think that's a virtue. Um, but to your point, is Bauer dead? Uh, I think a good prediction for 2016 would be to see NPM become the central repo for front end libraries as well as 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 node libraries. Um, yeah, I think it'll. I think personally, it'll stick around. Um, I know Microsoft recently embraced it. Um, there's people that have yet to even experience it with Visual Studio 2015 and MVC6, ASP.NET 5, whatever approach you're, you're coming from. Uh, Bauer's there. So uh, to have something that is now brand new and shipping with such a massive install base like Visual Studio, to call it dead, I think, is a little premature. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that you know moving from Bauer to NPM is really not that big of a deal. So honestly, mm -hmm. I, I don't know that developers are going to care a whole lot. You know, I, don't, I don't think they're going to mourn the days when, you know, it's not going to be like Flash. But the but the icon was cool, so we'll, the icon, we'll miss the bird. The, the, the bird, I will miss the bird, yeah. Is that the canary in the coal mine, though? Is that the end of JavaScript if Bauer dies? It, it, is that the end <laughs> of JavaScript? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right. Um, Grunt was another one that shortly followed Bauer. So I think it was kind of the same scenario there. It was like, okay, we don't have a lot of contributors or the, the key contrib contributors are gone. So it's dead. Uh, we've had, we have other ones too, like uh, even Java, you know, big, um, not JavaScript based language declared dead. By, by Oracle, by its, by its owner, who summarily released all their developer advocates and and sent out a very harsh memo saying that Java was not important. Um, obviously, we as developers know that that's, that's ridiculous. Um, and uh, we feel for those folks who lost their jobs this past year, deserve better than that. Um, but Absolutely. yeah, again, interesting that Oracle would just sort of take a stance on something that we know is so ubiquitous. I mean, Xamarin just picked up uh, RoboVM, which is you know building native apps in Java. So. Java is alive and well, thanks to Google. So there's a little analogy here too, though. So when something in the tech industry is declared dead, okay, it's much like a painter that dies. The artwork that painter created becomes worth so much more after they're gone. So developers that are working with these so-called dead things, dead languages, uh, that's a great time for developers to get bigger pay for these dead things, especially after time goes on. Obviously, uh, if Java was really indeed dead, um, years from now, though, 
knowing Java is is going to be money in the bank, like uh, COBOL, uh, people that know COBOL, I'm sure, uh, can attest to. Yeah, and just to be clear, I, I don't think Java's, I think Oracle declared it dead, um, but I think that's that's sort of a ridiculous notion, and it kind of shows how out of touch Oracle actually is. I don't, I don't <laughs> think anybody actually believes that Java's uh, dead. Quite the contrary, yeah, it's alive and yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, just like web forms, I mean, they People have have paraded that around for quite some time. Web Forms is dead. Uh, no, no, right. It's not, it's not. It's not going away anytime soon. Um, I've heard through various sources that it's actually going to get some decent updates in the future. So, uh, you know, we we have a tend tendency to call these things dead before their time. Uh, jQuery is another one. Dynamic languages in general been declared dead this year. Yeah, so. we have this sort of we'll sick see. sick fascination as developers with like pointing out uh, the weaknesses in our tools and then like everybody shoot it, right? Like, <laughs> did, don't you see this weakness? It, it's, it's got this glaring weakness. Let's put it out of its misery. And we're, we're all so quick to jump on that, right? Like, I want to be, I want to pull the trigger. Yeah, let's, let's put it down. Um, yeah. And, and that's, it's a really bizarre uh, thing that we do. Kind of weird. Yes, definitely. Uh, and then there's some new things coming about for, uh, well, this year, the end of this year, and um, I'm sure early in the next year, some things like uh, Bootstrap 4 uh, released an alpha this year. Um, so there's another life-death scenario. Uh, we've got a brand new version of the web's favorite uh, responsive web design framework, Bootstrap, and they're moving completely to SAS. So does that mean less is dead? I don't know. Maybe I need to write that article. Huh. That's true. Actually, I think that's not far from the truth. Um, and that's too bad because I, I thought less was a superior a superior framework. But thousands of developers would disagree with me. So, um, And I'm I am okay one of them. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will say um, it's not... It's not one of those things that I'm like, oh, yay, SAS won, less is dead, I hate less. Like, I have nothing against less. Um, I just happened to use SAS. It was one of those things that I picked up first, and it was like, I already know this thing, and there's this other thing that's exactly like, like it, so might as well just use the one I'm already using, right? Yeah. So now that I've chosen a side, so to speak, and... Um, seeing that side win it's like oh hey good for me I, you know for once in my life <laughs> i picked the team that was going to win so i don't have to go you know learn this other skill that's similar yet different doesn't that stink though is for developers that we have to sort of put our eggs in a basket and you're just not even sure if that basket's even still going to be around in a year and and of course yeah. we're not building applications so that we can throw them away and immediately rebuild them i mean that's there's no strategy in that I remember when uh, I was working on a, a project in Flex and we put, you know, we bet everything on Flex and then the iPhone came out and, you know, Flash applications didn't run on the iPhone. And we were immediately, it was like, man, what do we do? And eventually the company just dissolved because we couldn't start all over again. Just, just kind of crazy yeah. what we have to put up with as developers. Sometimes it comes down to timing. I mean, if you were far enough ahead of, you know, your release schedule or whatever, it wouldn't have mattered so much. Sounds like really, really bad timing in that case. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. But I mean, think about all the people that have Bower, like, you know, very integrated into the workflow or Grunt, 
right? They, they're building grunt plugins and they, and they're, they're, it's, it's part of their development workflow. And, and to say like, well, you, you know, don't use grunt anymore. Everybody uses gold now. That's, God, it's yeah. exhausting. <laughs> I think, I think people should use what works for them despite the hype. Which brings me to foundation six. So I was a big foundation user and still, if I have an application to write, that's what I would choose first, just because I used it so much. I mean, I, I, it's something that I had quite a bit of experience with. So um, I wouldn't say it's a superior framework to Bootstrap or anything like that. It's um, a pretty equal alternative to Bootstrap. So Foundation 6 just came out, a uh, brand new version of Foundation. Uh, lots of you know cool new slickness to that. Uh, it's lighter weight. Uh, lots of new SAS mix-ins. Again, we're seeing SAS in our two two primary um, responsive frameworks now. So there's there's two big competitors for that. But these two things, you know, kind of go head and head and it, head to head. And it's um, Foundation's the one that I chose to run with, and I'm glad to see it hasn't died, even though it still hasn't quite gotten the notoriety as Bootstrap. I mean, Bootstrap just is owning everything. They really are. You know, the last time I did a session, I sort of pulled the audience and asked who was using what framework and man everybody was using bootstrap everybody it's insane there's there's that one guy like me in the background like foundation's right. awesome right like, anybody, <laughs> anybody using foundation yeah so any big predictions for 2016 we haven't uh, covered yet What's what's in your wheelhouse, uh, Burke? What do, what are you looking at for 2016? Oh man, that's a good question. Um, man, I think React is going to be big in 2016, not because of this idea that React's faster because it has a, a virtual DOM, which I think is the premise that it was sold upon, but this idea that you can create these incredibly componentized applications with React and and the way that it handles data flow is just unlike anything that we've ever seen before, and developers just love it. You just love it. Um, and so as, as my friend Cody Lindley likes to say, React, you can think about React as, as a DOM abstraction, which is what jQuery is, but it's a different kind of DOM abstraction. So I think 2016 will be the year that we begin to see people move from jQuery to the React type of DOM abstraction. I'm going to go ahead, go ahead and go out on a limb and say that. Um, I also think 2016 will be the year. I can't believe I'm about to say this. I think 2016 will see the likely death of the Polymer project at Google. Um, and here's why I say that. Um, the web components is such a sticky area. You know, you had uh, Shadow DOM, which was removed from Safari, then it was added back. And then you had Safari pull support for custom elements. And you had Firefox do something similar. And it's been about a year now that we've been trying to go forward with this. And Google's got the full weight of their team behind it. And man, are they doing some good work. Polymer is probably some of the best engineering I've ever seen, but it just is not catching on. And I think that because Google has such a history of killing things that it doesn't think are gonna be successful, or even things that are mildly successful, like Google Reader, but not successful enough, it has a tendency Wave. to- <laughs> Yeah, it has a tendency to just pull the plug on them. And so I just wonder how much longer that's gonna go on before Google can either push everybody into the web. What's more likely that Google is going to be able to push all the browsers into supporting web components and service worker and app shells and HTTP2 and HTTPS, or is it going to be that we can't get 
all of that done. And so instead we're going to begin to adopt frameworks like React. And I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be the latter. So I'm going to go a little bit safer route. I'm not going to pick a specific framework to do a prediction on. I will, I will predict some styles of development though. So uh, I believe that functional style programming is going to pick up more steam in 2016. Uh, we see things like uh, C Sharp gaining features for functional style programming. Um, I've even seen previews in which it does uh, something like pattern matching. So that it's really interesting to see C Sharp picking up more and more steam towards the uh, things that people love about F Sharp. And then with ECMAScript 6, God, that's a mouthful, uh, coming uh, in, into the you know adoption phase, um, it's picking up more functional style uh, elements of programming. So you know JavaScript's getting more and more functional. C Sharp's getting more and more functional. These are these are things that I use. So my prediction is though those will continue to rise. I was saying object oriented programming is dead. Is that what you're saying? No, I wouldn't call it dead at all. <laughs> uh, it's um, it's one of those things I believe is going to go hand in hand. So complementary to each other, uh, they're they're going to work for again the right tool for the job. So certain things are great object oriented, uh, but there's a lot of you know business logic that could be written that's easier to understand, more concise, smaller chunks of. Um, functions that can just be passed along to, you know, pipelines and things like that. I totally agree with that, man. I think that um, the right answer is always some sort of middle ground between all of these different uh, uh, concepts. To say that object-oriented programming is always the right answer is just ridiculous uh, because we all know that inheritance is just a socially acceptable form of tight coupling, right? And to say that functional programming is always the answer is just is just a fallacy, but good apps will have some characteristics, uh, the best characteristics from all of those concepts. And we were kind of riffing on this one before we kicked off the show too, but I think machine learning is going to be another one, maybe not 2016, but definitely in the near future. I say near, I mean like five years, uh, that every you know big application is going to have some kind of feelers into uh, we see things like Azure Machine Learning and Amazon's uh, machine learning services, and then Google open sourced theirs this year. So a uh, little bit of uh, what's new in 2015, Google open sourced their, um, I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, uh, something so it starts with an F. Yeah, the name is. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, escaping me at the moment too, but um, it's a big deal. Um, and these are tools that are not uh, somebody that's uh, you know like us can operate. We don't need you know data scientists and in our uh, language uh, experts to operate these things. These are uh, built with GUIs and have drag and drop interfaces, and we can plug them into data and select these amazing. Um, machine learning algorithms that can tackle, you know, large chunks of data and give us some really crazy insights on what's going on with our data. And uh, that's going to that's gonna take applications and put them ahead of the pack, uh, depending on what the 
scenario is for that application. Uh, you know, for an application, say, even like, um, like Uber, for instance, if they integrate some kind of machine learning into that to where it gets your, your car faster, it's going to blow away the competition that doesn't have it. So keep yeah, an eye on that. It's a, strate- a strategic advantage. And I think you could even call it the commoditization of machine learning, right? That developers, developers don't need to know machine learning. They just need to be aware of how it works at a high level to be able to conceptually assemble it and know how to consume a REST API. And I think you're right. People will expect, number one, that applications will be smarter and those APIs are going to do that. And number two, that that will provide a strategic advantage that so far hasn't been exploited, right? So far it's been, what can we glean from straight up analytics on cubes? It's probably the most advanced we get. And machine learning will be the next evolution in that. Yeah, it hasn't been exploited in the you know, custom application development community yet. But folks like Google, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, you know, the big guys, uh, all of their, pretty much any of their applications are using this stuff. Uh, Google Mail, um, the Windows Phone keyboard, and, you know, trivial things that you wouldn't even think machine learning is behind. It's behind. So the big guys are out there, you know, getting their, their big apps into the market with this stuff behind it. Uh, it's going to be tough for the little guy if, if you're trying to com- compete with one of them. But if you're one of the little guys competing with another little guy and you're able to put some machine learning uh, juice behind it, I mean, you could really offer something the competition can't touch. So interesting stuff coming up. Yeah, for sure. So I leave the show with one final prediction, and I'm, I'm going to give it to you, Burke. You ready oh. to make this for me? You want me to make the prediction for you? Yes. Who are you voting for, Trump or Clinton in 2016? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> is, there a, is there a third option? Uh, I'll let you plead the fifth, and yeah. we shall close out the show. I'll take the fifth, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so thanks for coming on the show and uh, doing the, the urine review with me, uh, Burke. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you staying up late. For those who are listening who don't know, it's very yeah, late. Yeah, this, this is very late. We're recording this uh, year-end show as the final episode of Season 1 of Eat Sleep Code. So thank you for all the brand new listeners that tuned into the show this year and uh, helped kick off the first season. We will be back in January with a brand new set of shows and guests and talk about all of the cool things that are happening in development. And hopefully some of the things that we predicted uh, we'll get to talk about next year with some great folks that are experts on those subjects uh, to keep you guys informed so you're making the right decisions every day when you build apps. And uh, hopefully you guys are checking out uh, developer.telerik.com where you find all the podcasts and all the show notes. Um, and all of our wonderful blogs by the Telerik DevRel team. And uh, also check out some of our awesome products like Kendo UI and NativeScript and the Telerik platform for building mobile applications. Burke, any last words? Nope. Time for bed. Time for bed. Thanks, guys. Have a good year. TNC in 2016.